age group athletes have to have more patience because they can't do it all at once. They can't, even professionals can't, um, you know, really work on a weakness and improve a strength and maintain or improve, you know, one of the other disciplines all at once. That triathlon show, 168. Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Barb Lindquist, a true legend in triathlon. If you don't know Barb, she has 33 professional triathlon victories to her name, from sprint to Ironman distance. She was the number one ranked female athlete in the world from 2003 to 2004 and represented the United States in the 2004 Olympics in Athens, where she was ninth. In 2010, she was inducted into the USAT Hall of Fame. She retired from racing in 2005 and then began to coach athletes and also to work for USA Triathlon, where she's famous for setting up the collegiate recruitment program which is how athletes like Gwen Jorgensen, for example, and other dominating US female athletes were brought into triathlon. So in today's interview, we discuss a whole variety of things, really, ranging from the elite side of things to to age group-focused aspects. So that just sort of happened to be the way the conversation unfolded, hence the somewhat generic title of the episode. But uh, you'll just hear for yourself as we get into it. And I think it was a really, really great discussion that anybody can get a lot out from. But before that, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration makes electrolyte products that help you get hydrated and stay hydrated so you can perform well in training as well as in racing. Uh, It's not just for prolonged racing in hot or humid climates. Electrolytes are really important as well now that we are still in the winter season when you're losing a lot of sweat on the trainer or on the treadmill to make sure that you can you can sustain a high intensity, keep the quality of your work going as you go for a long time. If even if you don't go for that long a time, like electrolytes, you lose if you lose a lot of electrolytes in your sweat and you sweat a lot when you're indoors, which you likely do, because most of us do then electrolytes can be the difference between having a good workout and a great workout. And also it's great for recovery between workouts, as I mentioned, especially in the last episode, and especially if you do two workouts per day, uh, rehydrating with precision hydration between workouts is something that I started doing recently, and uh, I'm seeing great benefits from that. So check out Precision Hydration on precisionhydration.com. You can take their free online sweat test to get your individualized hydration strategy for training and racing and use the code show all one word, all caps, to get your first box for free. All right, let's hear from Barb Lindquist. Today's guest on that triathlon show is Barb Lindquist. Welcome to the podcast, Barb. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, in the public eye, I think that uh, you're probably w- one of your most r- recent and famous achievements is uh, the work that you've done now after your racing days with 
the collegiate recruitment program that has been so successful for USA Triathlon and produced many world-class athletes. So can you tell us about, uh, just give the listeners that may not know about it, tell them what it is and uh, and tell, tell us about the results that you've had. Sure. So the collegiate recruitment program is a program we started in 2009. Uh, after I retired from racing in 2005, I started working for USA Triathlon um, as the elite development coach. And as when you're part of a big organization, you have to put in yearly goals. And one of my goals was if somebody wanted to methodically recruit collegiate runners and swimmers into the sport of triathlon, how would you go about doing it? And my boss at the time um, liked the idea and he said, how would you like to make this your job? And so basically what I'm looking for um, are collegiate runners and swimmers who have a background in the other sport so that when they're done with their NC2A collegiate careers, they can come on over to triathlon and we're transferring that single sport talent into multi-sport. And the reason I kind of looked at that is that all of our Olympians for triathlon in the U.S. at that time, so in the 2000 Olympics and then 2004, all of them either swam or ran in college and um, all except Hunter Kemper came over to the sport, uh, came over to triathlon after college. Um, what, was there a so fairly, the fairly program, equal, sorry, was there a fairly equal distribution between swimming and running in, in terms of backgrounds or is it skewed one way or the other? Yeah, it's interesting. The women had swimming backgrounds and the men had running backgrounds, except for Andy Potts, who was in 2004. He swam at the University of uh, Michigan. So it's interesting that, yeah, the, the, the women, we all came from swimming backgrounds. Mm, okay. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah. so, so go on then and tell us uh, about the, the results that you, you had setting and how, how you went about setting up that program. Yeah, so kind of obviously it started from scratch and each year has built on uh, the previous year. And I look back to what we did in the first year compared to what we're doing now. And it just seems so infantile, but that's just the way it it is when you start a new program. Um, so I started the, you know, the, the key parts were, you know, one, getting the word out about this opportunity that USA Triathlon wanted to support athletes with for, in the college ranks to triathlon. So it's kind of a marketing aspect. The second leg of that is that um, we had to come up with some standardized testing and um, like requirements and time standards of the type of athlete that we wanted to have. And then the third is like, what do we do with these great athletes when we find them? And how are we going to support them uh, in a coaching venue? And how are we going to support them you know, with other resources? And so it's the, the program has morphed so that we started when, so for example, Gwen Jorgensen, who came in in um, 2010, we didn't have a resident program. So we, I set her up with a local coach to um, help her with triathlon, do her coaching. And then I just kind of mentored them uh, as, as she went along in her, in her career. But she did most of that training in her home base and not with a squad. And so um, in 2013, we realized that we needed to have a place for athletes to go. And so we started a resident program where there was a coach and, um, and then all the athletes came to that coach. And that started in Colorado Springs at our Olympic Training Center. But we realized after a year that being at altitude with a whole bunch of runners learning to swim or trying to work on you know, their weakness of the swim was just 
it was so too hard. So that program then moved down to Scottsdale, Arizona, and then over to, to San Diego. Um, and now we're, we don't have a resident program anymore, but we are now supporting athletes, which with we, what we call the collegiate recruitment program scholarship. So the athletes that we identify and are excited about, we um, give them a scholarship and they can go to any approved program with a coach. And so it's the athlete that's getting supported kind of like they would a scholarship in college. Um, but they can, they can choose a coach that they would like, because we know all, all of us as athletes know that not every coach works for every athlete. So it's nice to have a, a choice. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the testing that you did to, when you identify those talents, do you test them in all three disciplines, even though somebody may be just a swimmer and is just getting started in triathlon? Do you still want to see some baseline uh, performance in running, for example, or even cycling or how, how did that work? Yeah. So, I mean, we're primarily looking at the testing of their, uh, you know, for runners, we're looking for the swim and for swimmers, we're looking for the run, but we do like them to test in their primary sport as well, just to give us an idea to kind of help with our whole testing um, standards. If we know what the best runners in the sport are doing, then, um, or the runners coming into the sport are doing, then that kind of helps with our, with the time standards we set up for the swimmers. Uh, so we just have a, you know, a simple swimming test where um, an athlete does a hundred free and then they rest a minute and then they do a 500. So we're looking for kind of pure speed and then some speed endurance. And, um, and then for the runners or for the swimmers, we're just looking at a 1600 uh, on the track. And um, then we ask for videotape for that too, because there can be a lot of low hanging fruit with technique, um, especially for in the swim, you know, if there's something in an athlete is doing, that's very obvious, uh, that's an easy fix that can really skew a 100, 500 swim test. Yeah. Um, and then in the primary sports, we have, um, like times from college. So like for runners, we, we have, you know, from a 1500 to a 5k, uh, you know, time standards for each of those events in between that. It's interesting that at the start, of the program, we were looking at, um, our A standard for runner, male runner was, uh, 15, 15 for 5k. And now it's 14 minutes. Wow. So we've, yeah. So we've really tightened, tightened it up. Some of that of the demands of competition, like the men are running faster than they were, uh, you know, a decade ago. So that's always kind of shifting our standards, but to realizing, you know, those guys are running so fast. If we're going to invest in somebody, we have to, we're investing in medalists. That's what we're looking for is that diamond in the rough. Um, so they have to be able to run fast. What did the runners need to do in those swim tests? What, what are the benchmarks there? Yeah. So it's all yards. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to help some of your. So it's you know, roughly, roughly 10, uh, roughly 10%, but the majority of listeners are in the U S about 40%. So let's go. Well, that's not the majority, I guess, but bigger than any other single nation. So, so go yes, with, so, with your yard yardage times. Okay, great. Thank, thanks. So there's kind of different, different points along the way with the swimming tests. So I'll just go with mail. So for an athlete who, you know, does a, like a cold Turkey test, they send me some video, I'll give them some, um, some trainings I have, you know, workouts that I can give them, give them feedback on the technique, kind of support them a little bit. 
And then maybe they retest the 100, 500 in a month or two. And if they can do for a male like 58 seconds um, and 545 for a 500, then, you know, then we start to invest a little bit, you know, more resources into them. If they are to reach uh, like to um, obtain a scholarship. So, you know, so there's different kind of different kind of layers. So if an athlete is going to receive money, get to go train with a coach, um, kind of as training as a full-time triathlete, like an elite would, uh, for the male, it would be a 56 and a 525. I just quickly did the math in my head there, and I think it's we're talking roughly 107, 108 for the, in meters per 100 meters, mm-hmm. and maybe 620. Uh, this one is more difficult for me, but, but around about 615 to 625 perhaps for the, for the 500 if, if we convert it to meters again. Uh, okay. And that is blazing fast for if we consider that these are runners. And so, do they have mm-hmm. they actually have most of them swum at some point in their life before, or are there actually athletes that are so talented that with a couple of months of training they they can get to those those sort of times? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, they have to have swum before, like you just said, they're they're really fast times. And um, you know, even if swimming is one of those sports, like I live in a winter culture. And it's similar to downhill skiing that if you don't do it as a, as a kid, it's really hard to learn as an adult. And so even if these athletes, um, you know, swam summer league from the time that they were, you know, 10 to 13, or maybe they swam in middle school or they swam a couple of years in high school. Um, and then, you know, maybe swam a little bit for cross training in college because a lot of runners will use the pool for cross training, especially if they've been injured. Um, you know, that can be enough to, for your body to remember the feel for the water and remember technique and kind of pick it up more quickly. But if they've never had any sort of swimming, it's, uh, I mean, it's going to, it would be a lot longer journey than we would be able to invest in. And then an athlete probably would, you know, would want to invest their time in. So that's the key part of this is that, you know, we're looking for runners with a swimming background. And interestingly in the U in the U.S., the the girls that we found or women that we found who have gone on to run in college that we're looking at, a lot of them have swum a lot longer time, um, like through their teens and even into high school, kind of have a, a, a deeper depth of the swimming than than our guys do. Mm. And and when when we say that they need to swim as kids, of course, neither one of us is trying to discourage the age groupers listening to this from swimming. And you can get <laughs> get really fast as an age grouper as well, even though you're starting late. But but here we're yeah. talking the world class level, so so that's uh, a bit of a different ball game. Uh, so, right. but your age groupers, if they have kids who they ever want to get into triathlon, like later down the line, get your kids in swim lessons or summer swim team. Now it's a great investment for. Uh, hooking them into the sport when they're an adult oh yeah yeah and so so tell us about the the results that you've had then i I guess most listeners will be familiar with but if you can just uh just talk about a few highlights that that you've had uh, people that have come through the the collegiate recruitment program and what they have achieved in the sport sure so i mean i think gwen jorgensen's our most famous um collegiate recruit grad so she she's an interesting one because she actually swam first at the university of wisconsin and then transferred over to running in the middle of her time there and she grew up as a swimmer and just ran a little bit in high school um but she's obviously really well known as a runner 
So she won gold in, in Rio. Um, Katie Zafaris was also on the team in Rio and she has, she's um, been ranked in the, she, she ended up the WTS series ranked second this year. Um, and she uh, ran steeplechase at Syracuse University, but grew up as a swimmer as well. And I love steeplechasers because they're like strong and kind of mongrel. And, you know, she's Katie's a, a strength athlete. So um, she's transferred really well over to the sport. Mm. Um, then um, Renee Tomlin and uh, Kirsten Casper both ran at Georgetown. And Kirsten's been ranked uh, fourth in the WTS series um, the last couple of years too. And then on the male side, um, we haven't had as much success on the male side, but one athlete that, um, that, uh, was his first year of racing last year. His name is Morgan Pearson. He ran at the university of Colorado was a 13, uh, 35, five care and, um, grew up on the shore in New Jersey with, and did some surf lifesaving and just really comfortable with the water. Uh, he had a great year last year. Uh, and this, um, we're just excited to see what he can do this this next year and um, see if he can be our first male collegiate recruit to make an Olympic team. I'm sure you've been asked this a lot of times. I, I've seen the question or and the discussion in many places, but but do you have a, a theory for why you've been more successful on the female side so far? Yeah, I mean, a couple couple uh, theories for sure that I have. One I mentioned earlier that the the women in the U S it seems to, they have a depth, more depth of swimming time. And I think that's, if you look at USA swimming, the men are men slash boys, like they start to drop off a little bit more in their teen years. Maybe swimming isn't quite as cool of a sport. And in the U S we have so many other opportunities between baseball, basketball, football, you know, for, for guys to do. So the runners that we do have that have a swimming brown background, they have just a little bit less depth than the the females and so it just is a little bit you know might might take that their swim a little bit longer to kind of come around i think the depth of the men um the wts is deeper too so it's just kind of harder to break through that as well um and then i one of my own theories too is that i i think sometimes you know it's um perhaps like harder for a guy to uh to, you know, if you're breaking into a sport and you're used to being successful at your running um, and you're coming in and getting beat all the time, I, I think, you know, years and years of that, that maybe, um, you know, that that might be harder for a guy than um, a female. And especially like our females, they break through more quickly. It's just, I think it's just harder to, to have that, you know, you know, that longer path, harder for anybody, but, you know, maybe more so a male um yeah yeah so so uh, switching gears a little bit uh you ended your your own racing career what year was that exactly i retired in 2005 in november and uh, what do you think has changed in training racing and and high performance coaching since since those days of your own racing yeah um yeah it's interesting to be on the you know athlete side back then and now on the coaching and even the USAT support side of things. I, I think one of the, the obvious things is that triathlon has become more Eurocentric. When I was racing, the Australians were the ones to beat. And that's kind of why I, I went for eight winters. I went to Australia to race their Formula One series in the winter because, uh, you know, to be the best, you got to go race the best. And so I went and did their 
whole national series for eight years um, because they were the ones to beat and uh, I wanted to learn from them. And so I think like, that's, that's one thing that's different. Like I only raced, I think I only raced five times in Europe over my career. And like one of those was a world championship and the other two were um, in Athens, the test event and the, the Olympics. But now, I mean, athletes can race, you know, that many times for sure in one season. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely, yeah, definitely one thing that's changed. And I think that, I think athletes, I think the federations are supporting athletes better. Um, at least I know USA triathlon is that what we can provide for elites now versus what I received, um, back in my racing days, uh, is it's a big difference. And I think that's just, you know, we have more support from the United States Olympic committee and the high performance department is bigger with more resources to help out athletes. And I think that's, I think that'd be true across the across the major countries too and is there anything in in the the training itself of the athletes that you think has changed or maybe race tactics or race dynamics that has changed yeah well i mean when i raced i was uh you know obviously i came from a swimming background in college and i came into the sport and i don't know if it was the perfect sport storm but there were you know two or three four other um, women around the country around the world who also had a really strong swim. So we could get out of the swim, have a breakaway of 20 seconds and turn that 20 seconds into three minutes sometimes at the start of the run in a draft legal race. And, you know, I, I sometimes like think or hypothesize, you know, um, you know, what if we were racing now, like, would we be able to do the same thing or has the level of the swim or the overall kind of yeah, the level of the swim um, improved for everyone across the across the world, and would they not, you know, would that small gap um, not be there? And you know, has their level of the bike of everybody bike strength improved so much that we wouldn't be able to stay away? A small group of three or four wouldn't be able to stay away from a pack. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, that's when I was racing, like in the in the. Um, women's races, it was, you know, definitely we had a, a swimmer bike pack that could create a, a really sizable gap on the next yeah. group. Yeah. Well, we only need to look, look back to the, the 2017 season, I guess, with, with Flora Duffy and what mm -hmm. she was doing and, uh, oftentimes to pulling one or two other athletes, but, uh, it is, it is still possible and has been, especially on the, on the female side with, with her in, in there driving the yeah. bike, but it's, it's, I guess, not so much creating the breakaway on the swim, but, in the transition mm -hmm. being up there at the front in transition and uh and having a really fast transition and then just just going going hard from the start on the bike and, that's and right on, not being afraid of that yeah that's great yeah she's on, been fun to watch on the the training side or or things around training like recovery and nutrition that sort of thing do, do you think that things are done differently at all these days or is it fairly similar to what you were doing yeah, it's, it's hard to say because, I mean, I wasn't a big numbers person, a science person um, with the training that we did. Uh, my husband was my coach. Um, he didn't have a sports science background. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think it's a lot more science oriented now. Um, maybe more of that, yeah, more of that, uh, yeah, more of that science versus, I mean, there's still some art to it. But, you know, from what I see, from, you know, um, with how USAT supports, it's, yeah, it's a lot more science oriented. 
Um, but I don't know if that was just me, you know, and that we were less science oriented back then and, you know, more the art um, and experience and um, focused. Mm. What is something that you've learned uh, now these days as as a coach yourself and uh, and a part of the USAT support that you learned uh, since your own racing days and may, perhaps something that you changed your mind about since those days and that you any, anything really whether it's training or racing related um yeah that's a really good question i think you know i think still um uh you know i i love this sport and that the people in the sport um there's not egos they're just they're just a, a lot of kind of normal people doing this crazy lifestyle. And so I think that's one thing that's the same with the athletes that I work with now um, and that are, you know, the collegiate recruits that have come through and are racing at the highest level. I mean, they're all just great, fantastic people. Um, and they, you know, work really hard just like we did back then. Um, yeah, let's see, one thing that's changed, you know, changed my mind or over the years Um, I think, I think one thing that's kind of maybe surprising to me is that there hasn't been more team tactics of, you know, setting up one athlete for success that more countries haven't done that, like in cycling. Mm. Um, I mean, we talked about that, you know, way back a decade plus ago when I was racing and you know, I think we've talked about that for years now, but it hasn't, hasn't, that hasn't been the default of the countries. So it, we're still individual sports, um, individual athletes you know, racing for your country. Yeah, and and where do you see elite triathlon developing in the next five or or ten years? Are there any big changes do, that you see happening, or w which direction do you think that things will take? Yeah, well, it, it's super exciting that the mixed relay is going to be um, debuted in Tokyo, and I think that that could. Um, you know, that could change the aspect, the type of athletes that are going to be racing um, in the Olympic distance, even because, you know, there's such a power speed component that's needed for the mixed relay. Um, and that's usually you think about younger athletes, like more early 20s versus late 20s, early 30s. Um, you think of those type of athletes, those younger athletes having more of that, that um, power speed component. So I I think one thing that we might see are are you know gearing down that more younger athletes are having success across the the international stage and certainly over the last couple of years uh, or more than that um, ITU has had more sprint triathlons um, at the WTS level I I I think that I was trying to think but last summer I did a sprint triathlon like a local one and I think that might have been my first ever sprint triathlon. I might have done one in the Australian series, but never did one as an elite. And now athletes have that choice that like they could race almost primarily those if they really wanted to. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely, absolutely true. And I know based here, personally here locally in Portugal, the most of the races, like I would say 75% of the races here are sprint uh, distance races. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a few Olympic distance races on the Uh, that the races that are governed by the by the natural federation and then of course there are a couple of half half distance races that are independent but but the majority here is uh geared towards the sprint distance and i i think that's that's probably the case in a lot of other european countries as as well mm -hmm. so it, it is interesting 
Uh, yeah. What about? And I think you know, as, a, as developing athletes, as you know, I have the CRP athletes coming through. It's great to have sprint races because they don't necessarily have, you know, that you, those years and years of the sport under their belt. And so, like having sprint races at the highest level is great for them and great for, yeah, the development pipeline. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and on that note, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, long-term athletic development as well. And uh, this, I guess, we can we can discuss from both the perspective of uh, elite athletes, but also age groupers. So, how long does athletic development in triathlon really really take? Uh, this is <laughs> sort of an open-ended question, but uh, but you can take it where where you want to go with it. Yeah, it's a good question. I've I've always heard like seven years in the sport. And you're at, you've reached your peak. I don't know. Have you heard that at all? I've, I've heard that too. I'm not sure it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look back at my career and I think as far as the run goes, I really think I was running, you know, running really well at about that seventh year. And I r- raced for 10 years. Um, you know, obviously our goal with, with the collegiate recruitment program is to shorten that up uh, and speed that up because, you know, with, especially with Olympic cycles and everything, you, you want to have more than just one um like kind of peaked shot at an olympic team uh, for sure so yeah i don't know with with um with professionals how long it kind of takes it's definitely a quicker move with the professionals than age groupers um i think you know obviously age groupers will take longer because they have less time to support they're not all in it's not their their primary job they're usually older to start um, but I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for age groupers to take a longer time to develop because it, I mean, it makes it more fun if you're always improving, right? We, we love it when we're dropping times and we love it when we're getting faster. So, you know, as an adult, if you're getting better at something over 10 years from your age 30 to age 40, like that's super exciting. Um, that wouldn't happen really necessarily on, for an elite. Over that but do you think do you time. think a lot of age groupers uh, have that mindset and take that perspective that uh, hey actually I'm I'm thirty now but imagine how fast I can be when I'm forty because that is true it uh, <laughs> takes longer yeah. and uh, and they can so much can happen if you're consistent over ten years even though you're not mm-hmm. training like an elite but you're you're training consistently as an age grouper but but what is the mindset because you coach age group athletes yourself so so what what mindset do you recommend that that age group athletes take about their own long-term development. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the, the coach's role is putting it in the, in the big picture, you know, not just this one season, but where does this one season lay the foundation for the next season? So I think, you know, age group athletes have to have more patience because they can't do it at all at once. They can't, even professionals can't, um, you know, really work on a weakness and improve a strength and maintain or improve, you know, one of the other disciplines all at once. You need to spend some time working on a weakness and then maybe your strength is just maintained. It's not improved. So for sure, an age grouper um, can't do it all. And they might need to focus on one discipline for a year and be okay with training weaknesses and racing strengths. I think all of us love to go and train our strengths because we feel good at it. They give it gives us positive feedback. We love it. But it's really the training of the weaknesses that's going to be the low-hanging fruit. Um, just just like a like you know, a chemical equation, you're only as fast as your slowest piece of it. So you know we have to work our weaknesses and um, 
And so I think having that multi-year long-term approach to it where, you know, okay, this year we're going to work on the bike and, you know, our run is just going to be status quo, but, you know, we are, we think we can get another three to four minutes off of our 40 K bike by just having a good focus on it and, and then being okay with that. If the run is the same split as you did the year before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think that's the coach's job. Yeah. That makes sense. Makes sense. And, and I definitely agree. Is there something that you, and now we're definitely here on, on a bit of an age group, uh, athlete track here with, with these questions, but is there something that you think that, uh, that triathletes tend to underestimate and on the flip side overvalue uh, with regards to training or or anything around triathlon um yeah that's a great question i um a couple things actually i was just sharing a story today with an athlete about um making sure the easy is really easy and not making that easy too hard so that when the hard sessions come you're rested for them so kind of not being in that junk zone and i was telling a story that when I was in Australia one year, we were out on a Friday, easy spin with my 20 year old, um, uh, whipping boy, uh, training partner, Matt and, um, an old guy in tube socks and, um, pedal cages. So not even clip-ins cages went by us and Matt kind of increased his speed. He's like, you know, inside the racers coming out in them. And I don't, don't even change my pedal cadence at all. And I just told him, said, you know, it takes discipline to go slow. Everyone can go hard and push, but it really takes discipline to go, to go slow. So, because we're recovering from yesterday's sessions and we're going to go hammer it all tomorrow. So I think, you know, that making easy, easy. And, um, and then I think the other thing kind of going along with that is recovery is really important and everybody knows that, but um, you know, I don't think I was one of the most talented people out there, but I think I did all the, the things between sessions really well to just, you know, prepare me to recover from one session and prepare me for the next. What are some so, examples of, of what you did between sessions and, and in general in regards to recovery? Yeah. Yeah. So even now today, um, you know, I roll, I, I use the trigger point technology rolling tools um, and, you know, yeah, I have to roll out in the morning before a run that I do at 5.30. You know, I'll get up 10 minutes earlier just to roll. And at the end of the day, instead of sitting on the couch, um, I usually, you know, roll again um, just to kind of work out the day or work out even like stretch stretch my legs out from sitting at the desk all day too. So, um, and then, um, you know, the nutrition aspect of making sure I got fuel in within the first 30 minutes of a, uh, of a hard training session, getting good recovery in from that. Um, learning to be a little bit bored, like as a professional triathlete, you have to be, you have to be able to put your feet up and not do something or, you know, just put your feet up and read or do puzzles or, or something like that to, cause we're all we're always kind of go, 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 but learning how to relax and kind of turn your mind off from triathlon and rest your body is, um, is an is another really good thing mm-hmm. and and uh, so those were like really great examples of things that people underestimate the value of and uh, do you have any examples of the contrary things that are uh, overvalued and uh, over prescribed perhaps yeah um so I, I maybe i'll go with nutrition um like i don't 
uh, you know, I had a drink mix and recovery mix and things like that, but I got most of my fueling from just regular foods and not from, you know, bars and a whole bunch of supplements and, and all that. So I think maybe people, uh, yeah, overvalue, like they make, I think they make, they can make nutrition more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to a podcast today, and it wasn't a triathlon podcast at all. It was some sort of it, it was a sort of mindset psychology podcast, whatever. But uh, the guy that was interviewed there, he talked about how he spends within the first three hours of waking up, he has spent seventy dollars or something on different supplements, uh-huh. exogenous ketones, and drink mixes, yeah. and uh, vitamins, and <laughs> whatever he had in his his morning routine. Oh, so, so that was a bit exaggerated, <laughs> I think. Oh man, yeah, yeah. I think that you're just simplifying, and I, I mean, plenty of people will disagree with that. But um, I think if you're just cooking most of your own food from scratch and not opening a can and not eating out, and just being proactive and planning your meals that way. And having lots of leftovers in the fridge where it's easy to zap something in the microwave and have a meal in three minutes after a workout, like that's, yeah, yeah that's what people undervalue maybe. Is that what you see that the elite, uh, the elite athletes that you work with in, in, as part of USAT that they do as well, that they, uh, they take a rather sim- simplified approach and uh, just eating general healthy food, not making things too complicated? Is is that what, what the athletes are doing as well? Yeah, from what I've seen, and I mean, I'm not with them day, you know, day in, day out by any means to kind of, to kind of know this, but it seems like everybody's kind of a foodie and that they, you know, enjoy, they enjoy a good meal. And that good meal is something that's been home cooked and they kind of know what they like and they're, you know, not afraid to just kind of keep repeating the, some of the same foods that, have worked for them yeah uh, and uh, the next question that we're approaching the end soon but a couple more questions for self-coached athletes what do you think are the most important things that they should consider uh when it comes to getting the most out of themselves and and their triathlon potential uh yeah so i think keeping on that same line of recovery i think one thing that maybe um, self-coached athletes don't do as much as plan out recovery weeks and so they might get to a point in their training where um, something's getting a little sore their niggly's coming on or they can feel that they're getting overtrained and then they plan a week a recovery week when recovery weeks need to be proactive you don't want to wait till you're overtrained or a niggly becomes an injury and so i think like planning those weeks, when those weeks are going to be in is an important uh, thing for a self, um, yeah, a self-coached age group athlete. How, how did you, and, and then, when you were uh, training, how, how did you use uh, recovery weeks? How often and how much did you cut down volume and intensity compared to your normal training week? Yeah. So I was a th- mostly like a three week on one week off, um, athlete. And I liked to use those recovery weeks, um, uh, I would keep the frequency of, of all my sessions, but we would, you know, turn those sessions, um, you know, it still have some quality within them, but maybe the quality is down, cut down by half and um, maybe the volume total by three fourths. I was kind of a high volume athlete and could handle a lot. Um, but I, I think one of the things actually I do with my athletes now is that I use a recovery week as a practice taper week. So 
especially with the, with a new athlete or if there's something that we wanted to, to try to like change or fine tune or play with, with a taper week, I would use that the recovery week as a taper week and then plan a brick at the end or maybe a 5k or, or something where we could kind of test and see how the athlete felt on the weekend and did this taper week work. Um, you know, what were sessions in there that we liked or didn't like, I think, cause I think that's another area that self-coached athletes can kind of play with a little bit more is being really confident in what their taper looks like. And I tell my athletes like they should be bored in taper week. It's these pretty much the same type of workouts, maybe a, a twist here or there, depending on how tired they came into that taper week or where we are in the season. But like the mind should not be, uh, you know, freaked out by anything that they see that week. It should be a little ho hum, mm. and the body's used to it and knows what's what to expect. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And and you were going on to say something else, I think, in in addition to to this in as the answer to the question. Uh, yeah, with, uh, yeah, so I used the, for myself, like the, yeah, three weeks on and the one week, um, recovery and, and then just making sure that I, on that recovery week still did a really good job, an extra job with all the things between the sessions. So the rolling, um, the yoga or stretching or whatever it is or sleep so that I could get ahead. So it's not like just maintaining all the time, but just trying to even get a little bit ahead for the next block that's to come. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that comes to mind for for age groupers to to get the most out of themselves? No, I think that yeah, I think that that's it. Just kind of being organized with planning. Okay, yeah, and and one one thing that that we talked about in in our email conversation before is uh, uh, the fitting of triathlon into life rather than uh, fitting life around triathlon. So can you expound upon that a little bit and and discuss how? age group athletes can do that and, and how you help your coached athletes with that. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's kind of, I don't want to say it's not my tagline, but it's definitely what is really important to me with my age group athletes. Um, because even when I was a professional triathlon was not the number one priority in my life. My number one priority was my relationship with God. My number one, my number two priority was my relationship with my husband and triathlon was the third priority. And I often prayed to God and said, like, if that balance ever gets out of order, please whack me upside the head and to get it back. So, you know, as a professional and ranked number one in the world, if triathlon's not my number one priority, you know, that's something that's super important for me to make sure my age group athletes understand and have in their life. Like balance is, is really important. And so in order to fit triathlon into my athlete's life, um, I have to know about their lives. And so I really feel with my athletes that, you know, I know about their work commitments. I know about their kids and their kids scheduling. I know about their passions outside of triathlon because like some, they have lives outside of even work and family and triathlon. They have other things usually that they like to do. And then, you know, what their priorities are. And so like, I really feel, you know, I have a great relationship with my athletes and, you know, it's for some of them, I'm called mom coach because it's, you know, maybe more than just triathlon stuff, just making sure that their priorities are in line and just kind of helping them with that. Um, so that's just, yeah, that's a really important part of not having triathlon rule your life because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're not defined by triathlon. And um, that was a really big thing too, too for me with racing is that 
you know, um, my self-worth was not wrapped up in a race result. My self-worth was wrapped up in, in that the creator of this world loves me, um, as his child. And that's where I got my feelings of self-worth from and my value. And so if I can start a, the, at the starting line with that in mind and with that in my heart, then the race result in a way doesn't matter. And I, I had this freedom to like, just go out and be risky and just kind of go for it. I didn't have any fear when I was racing because um, like my self-worth and identity was kind of taken care of. So trying to kind of convey that to, you know, share some of those, those lessons that I learned with keeping triathlon in its right place, sharing those with my athletes is something that I think that can help them. um, Yeah. Fit triathlon into life. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have a, better overall perspective i i guess and, and if you don't have the right perspective then let's say you you have to miss a session then then that can really mess with your head if if you don't understand that well it's just one session out of 365 or, or however many i'm going to do this year so uh so so it's it's not the end of the world it's uh it's, it's not going to to make a difference at the at the starting line uh, two months from now of course being consistent is important but but you also need to be consistent, but with, with the right perspective, does that sort of sum up your thoughts there in, in some way? Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and I do still, I do also like to, you know, fitting triathlon into life, like for my athletes who have spouses and kids, I try to see if they can include those kids and spouses in some of the sessions. So for example, I have a mom who's got three kids and when I, I have a, like a bike skills session for her, like taking her bike, her road bike out on the grass and doing a whole bunch of fun skills work really slow. Like that's something that her kids can join in. And it's kind of like a game in a way, or, you know, I'll put sometimes like, um, you know, Sunday's a day off, but if you can convince your husband to go for an easy ride, or if you can go for a walk with your kids or um, do a, TRX core video with your kids, then, then you can do it. But so it's kind of like trying to include the family along with them. So again, it's fitting triathlon into life. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really great point and, and something that, that of course many, I, I think that in, in, in many families, that's already a case that uh, if one uh, partner is sport athletic, then, then the other might, might also be, but, but for those that, where that's not the case, then that might be something that uh, that perhaps is is possible to to integrate in some way as a uh, as something that you do together, even if it's not triathlon specifically, but just just getting moving and do, doing something. So so that's a really great point uh, mm-hmm. as well. So uh, let's wrap up with the rapid fire questions and uh, take fifteen seconds or less to answer these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Um, I love the book, um, magical running and it's by uh, Bobby McGee, who was my running coach for a couple of years towards the tail end of my career. And, um, he's a coworker at USA triathlon and it's kind of on the mental skills. It taught me how to think like a runner, but you could apply it to triathlon too. I, I'm really going to put that on my list. I did not know that I know Bobby McGee very well from the outside, but, but I did not know that he had uh, offered a book. So that's, uh, that's definitely going on my list. Uh, what, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, I think I'm, um, I'm really good at being in the moment. 
like I'm a planner, but I really enjoy each session or enjoyed each session for its own merit and not necessarily for its bigger piece in the whole puzzle. Like you had said, uh, you know, somebody has a bad workout, they kind of get wrapped up in it. I was able to kind of let those workouts go and not think like how this workout is fitting in the big piece. So I think just being in the moment and that's the same with racing too. You can't, when you're on the bike, you can't think about the swim or the run. That's got to be in the moment. Yeah. And what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your triathlon career or in your coaching career after that, for that matter? Um, so my husband was my coach and I was probably a little bit, um, excuse me, <coughs> probably a little, uh, devil's advocate with him sometimes. <clears throat> so, uh, probably listening to him a little bit better and trusting him, especially towards the beginning of our, of our journey together. I trusted him as the further we got on when I saw that we had a lot of success, but uh, yeah, probably listening to him better would have been something I'd done, wish I'd done better towards the beginning yeah. of the career. He was an excellent, excellent coach. So where can the listeners go to if they want to find out more about you and uh, and your coaching? Tell us what your website is and, and any social media that you, you might have. And, and we'll also link to, to all of that in the show notes. Yeah, so I um, have a website, barblindquist.com. Um, and I had, do have a, a Facebook page as well, Barb Lindquist. And I'm not... I kind of going back to being in the moment. I, I think everyone should be living their own moments and not necessarily following a lot of other people's. So I don't, I don't do Twitter or Instagram except for USAT. Like I have a collegiate recruitment, collegiate recruitment program has, has a Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook account. So if people wanted to follow that, they, they could see a little bit more. That's, that's where I post for that for, on social media for that stuff. But my website's right. more where they could learn more about yeah. me. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Barbie. It was really great to for, for you to take the time to to chat with with me today and and tell the listeners about all of these things about uh, age group athletes, but also the what you've done for elite coaching in in the USA and and the, the collegiate recruitment pro- program. It's been great to to hear more about all of the things that have been going on behind the scenes. So so really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for what you're doing with for the triathlon community of um, all your podcasts. It's, it's really great to, um, to bring the education side and just, uh, you know, connect us all better in this world. So there you go. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can check out the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com. And if you have questions or comments, uh, leave them there. One thing that I wanted to mention here before we sign off for today is that I was recently a guest on two different podcasts, so I wanted to mention them so that you can check them out if you want to. Uh, the first one was uh, Try Swim Coach, episode 131, where we discussed Siler's hierarchy of endurance training needs, uh, plus we discussed a bit of my own athletic and coaching background as well. But I, I talked about Siler's hierarchy of endurance training needs before on this podcast, but in uh, this episode on Try Swim Coach 131, I'll link to it in the show notes and episode description. We go into it again and uh, my most up-to-date opinions on it, I guess. And then the second one was Endurance Hour 286, 
where we discussed polarized training, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to say. And uh, that was another really great conversation. So, and that too, I will, of course, link to. So you can check those two out. Try Swim Coach and Endurance Hour. If you are a new listener, welcome. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you get all the new episodes as they are released every Monday and Thursday. Also, make sure that you go back and look through the archives on thattriathlonshow.com and click through to uh, to the podcast archives and uh, see any episodes that you might be interested in that seem relevant to you. There are hopefully a lot of them, so so you have a lot of catching up to do, I, I hope. If you're a long-time listener and you've really enjoyed following the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a rating and review. That is really the lifeblood of podcasts, and that's how... I can attract sponsors and keep sponsors on the podcast and uh, keep the show sustainable. A big thanks to uh, Ron Piper in the United States who writes awesome content, five stars. A constant supply of actual usable uh, triathlon information for all levels. The training ideas and methods are not in short supply and there are many options presented depending on how you feel about various theories of training. A must listen if you haven't yet, you will be hooked. Thank you so much, Ron Piper. Really, really appreciate that. And thank you, Precision Hydration, for sponsoring this episode. You can find them on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get your individual hydration strategy for training and racing and use the promo code Show, all one word, all caps, to get your first box for free. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.